At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 324th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Healthy food is something that everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious, and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Today on our podcast, we have someone who knows that space can be an issue when you want to grow a garden. We're talking with returning guest Jessica Walliser about container gardening. Horticulturist Jessica co-hosts The Organic Gardeners, an award-winning program on KDKA Radio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and serves on the editorial advisory board of the American Horticulture Society. In addition, she is also the author of several books on gardening, including Amazon bestseller Good Bug, Bad Bug, Who's Who, What They Do, and How to Manage Them Organically, and her fourth book, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to the Garden, A Natural Approach to Pest Control, which was awarded the American Horticulture Society's 2014 Book Award. Congratulations for that. Welcome back to the show, Jessica. Are you ready to rock planting boxes? I always am. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you again, Greg. I know we had a lot of fun last time, and I'm looking forward to it again this time. Oh, that we did. So you were on episode 318, and today we're actually going to talk about your latest book, Container Gardening Complete, Creative Projects for Growing Vegetables and Flowers in Small Spaces by Cool Springs Press. Now, this book is being touted as the best and most complete book on container gardening on the market. And I can see why. Tell us about that. Well, this is a really exciting opportunity for me. Cool Springs Press had been talking to me about doing a book with them for a while. And they actually came to me with the idea of a container gardening book. And we kind of went back and forth because there's a lot of container gardening books on the market, but I wanted to do one that was a little bit different and a whole lot more comprehensive than most of the other container gardening books out there. And so what we cover is everything from the very start of the season and how to get started all the way through, you know, what do you do with your containers in the winter when you're done growing in them? And I'm really proud of it. It was a whole lot of hard work, but they did a beautiful job with the design. And, and you know, it's always exciting when you have a new book come out. Oh my gosh. Well, well, and plus it's a heck of a lot of work to get it to that place. It's got to just feel like exciting and amazing to have it actually on the market. It is. It's true. And people oftentimes compare writing a book and having a book come out to, you know, having a baby and mm -hmm. having done both, I can say it, it, it doesn't quite compare to having a baby. However, I will say that it is sort of like a nine month to a year process oh, to, yeah. to, have to come to fruition. So I can see where people make that analogy, but it's exciting. And, you know, this is my fifth book and it, it's as exciting as it was the very first book. So 
it's the same level of excitement. Nice. Well, congratulations. That is really cool. And this book, it's amazing. I'm sitting here looking at it and it is in depth. It's 150 pages. And I can see why with everything that you jam packed in here, why they're calling it the most complete book on container gardening. It's beautiful. And once again, congratulations. Thank you so much. So three pillars of successful pots. That's on page 15. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, hosting the radio show in Pittsburgh, as I do, I hear from a lot of callers and folks who have questions about, you know, why their container gardens didn't succeed. You know, what what happened? Why didn't this happen to my tomatoes? Or why didn't I get my flowers to bloom as I would have liked? Or they were great in the beginning of the season, and then they really petered out toward the end of the season. Mm -hmm. So I wanted, to, I wanted to start this book out with really setting a foundation for successful containers, because so many gardeners get really jazzed when it comes to picking out what plants they're going to put in the container. But there's a lot of things that you need to consider before you even get to that part. And so the three pillars of successful container gardening is really the section of the book that's all about setting up that foundation. Because if you don't do that right, you can plant whatever the heck you want to plant in that container, but you're not going to have a good chance of success because you haven't built that good foundation. You know, even though it's the least glamorous part about container gardening, it's the part that people don't like to think about. You know, they don't like to think about the foundation. They just want to get to the fancy decorating. It's a really important place to start. And that's why I really dedicate the front portion of the book to describing those three pillars, talking people through them, and really giving them the best chance for success. So what are the three pillars? Oh, well, you have to buy the book to know that. <laughs> well, I would guess... I would guess that container would be one of them. What container you're putting them in? Well, I'm not going to give it away. <laughs> and soil might be a second one, but I'm a little bit baffled about what the third one might be. Can you right? enlighten us on the third one? Well, I will tell you that you're right about the first two. And of course, those are absolutely essential. You know, yes. Choosing the right container matters so much. The right size, the right material. And this book goes through each specific different type of material that you can get. And there's a lot of new updated materials that gardeners could not get 10 years ago. And what these new materials are allowing us to do is have a lot more flexibility in our container gardening. Some of them are super lightweight. Some can be left outdoors all winter long. And that's really been a huge boon to gardeners, just the different types of containers that are available. And so too with potting soil. I mean, lots of different brands on the market, a whole bunch more choices as far as organic selections, which being an organic gardener, that's all I ever recommend to people. And then of course, talking about ways to, to even better the best quality potting soil can still be made better. And so different additives and things that you can put in that soil that are free of synthetic chemicals, but are super good for your plants. The placement of that container matters as well. So I go into that quite a bit. And again, it's not a glamorous aspect of container gardening, but it, it is the most important aspect of it. Perfect. So soil, you mentioned soil. I get that question a lot, you know, from my listeners, what kind of soil do I use? Can you give us just one or two tips on that? Yeah, well, I think probably the best tip is, you know, what your mama told you for many years, which is you get what you pay for. And so if you're going to go to the hardware store and you're going to buy the cheapest bags of potting soil that you can find, you are just doing yourself a huge disservice with that. Nurserymen don't skimp on the quality of potting mix that they use in their plants because they know what a huge difference that can make. That being said, 
you don't have to spend a whole lot of money for high quality potting soil because you can mix your own. And so one of the things that I offer in the book is actually recipes that I and other members of the industry and other horticulturists have tried and tested, ones that I used when I worked in nurseries for many years, so that you can buy the separate ingredients, blend them together on your own, and you end up with a huge cost savings because you're making them in bulk. You're not having to pay for packaging or advertising or the cost to have those bags of potting soil shipped to the nursery. Mm -hmm. You're doing it yourself. And so it's a great way to save time, save a little bit of money in doing that. And not to say there's not great potting soil mixes out there, and certainly lots of people do that. And I talk about that as an option as well. But mixing your own is a great way to save money, especially if you have a lot of containers to fill. Perfect. And then the third one, kind of give us a little clue about what the third pillar is. You weren't listening close enough, Greg, because uh -oh. way back when, when I was talking about the container choice and what you fill it with, I did. So you're going to have to go back and listen to this podcast and see if you get exactly what that third pillar is. I'll let your listeners see if they can pick up on that too. Perfect. And one of the beautiful things about this book is the how-tos. You have almost, I'm going to say, a mind-blowing number of how-tos in the book. Let me just read a few of them. Building a garden gutter, building a cedar box, a hypertufa planter. We're going to talk about that one in a minute. Hanging begonia basket, a beginner's berry garden, a self-watering pot, container irrigation systems, a pollinator can, a squash arch, milk crate garden, a bicycle wheel trellis. These are all potting ideas that you came up with and you beautifully illustrate how to make them happen. What's one of your favorites? Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to hear you say that, Greg, because let me tell you, it was a whole dang lot of work <laughs> to do all those projects. You took pictures and step-by-step -step instructions. You outlined exactly how to make these things happen. Right. And I did all the photography myself. You know, I had to get the models and I had to build the projects. And so it was a big lesson for me as well on, you know, taking a big bite of a project and really doing everything. I mean, everything in this book was me, which was the first time that I had ever done that quite, you know, mm -hmm. immersed myself so deeply into a book. But those projects, we wanted to make them, number one, accessible to the average consumer. We wanted to make them affordable. So we wanted to use things that you might already have around your house mm -hmm. to construct these containers. And of course, we wanted to, them to be really creative. We wanted to talk, make something that was, that was unique, that used the right plants partnered with that container so that you would see the greatest chance of success as well. You want me to pick a favorite. That's yeah. like taking my favorite kid. I know. I only have one kid, so I don't usually have to do that, but I really loved the Hypertufa making project. That was really fun and it turned out really great. I don't know if your listeners know or you know what Hypertufa is. No, but you got to explain that. Yeah, it's a lightweight version of a planter that looks like a concrete planter, but it weighs about, I don't know, maybe a tenth of the weight of the same size container in concrete. Wow. It's a mixture of a special type of cement, and then that is mixed with lightweight materials, meaning perlite and peat moss. Mm -hmm. And it's mixed at a certain proportion, and then it's molded. And you can see a lot of Hypertufa making you know, projects online, but 
I did mine a little bit differently because we wanted a big one and we wanted a bold one with a really unique look and it turned out really fabulous. That was a super fun one to experiment with as well. I've done some workshops on making hypertufa containers, uh-huh. but they're usually really small, like sort of like a little trough, you know, for succulents or something like that. But we went big with this one. We did a huge diameter one that you couldn't even get your arms around the size of this container. And it was a really fun one to make. And also the pollinator can. I really enjoyed because you know me with my interest and love of native insects. Oh, yes. We had to make sure we had a project in the book that was meant to promote and encourage and support pollinators with resources, both as far as, you know, nesting habitat and then also nectar foraging as well. We did a great job with that. And we had super fun because you do it in a trash can, which is, you know, one of those big metal galvanized trash yep. cans. That was a fun one to do. You know, I, I did that here at the Urban Farm about 15 years ago, I was looking for some big pots for my back patio and a big pot is really expensive. You yeah. you could easily spend three to $400 on a ceramic pot for your backyard. And I was at the hardware store one day and they had these metal cans for $32 a piece. I was like, wow, I drilled some holes in the bottom of them and made them into planters. Yep. And we actually use that in the book too for another project, which is growing squash. And we build this really cool arch to go over in between two big trash cans like that to grow a really great squash crop as well. So Mm -hmm. again, we wanted to go with some recycling, repurposing household containers as much as we could, because I know that container gardening can be really expensive. But the other thing in going back to our conversation about you know, choosing the right kind of container for the right kind of plants. And I mentioned that there's so many new materials and containers available. One of the ones I think is worth, you know, mentioning are the fabric containers that are becoming more and more popular. There are a lot of times they're recycled geotextile fabrics. They are really wonderful because they're inexpensive. They're lightweight. They're really easy to move, you know, from one side of the deck to the other side of the deck. You can reuse them year after year. And they're also really good for plants roots as well because the plants don't become pot bound when they're grown in a fabric container instead ah. when the root hits the that fabric container instead of spinning around and growing in a circle inside the pot they actually branch so it, it naturally does you know what we call root pruning it causes that little tiny rootlet to fork and to branch and so what happens is you wow. end up with a really cool highly branched really fibrous root system that really helps that plant grow and access nutrients and access water. They're really creative and great ways to garden with those fabric containers. Yeah. And they seem to be a lot more widely available just in the past 18 months or so. Definitely. Yeah. But again, it's one of those things too, where you get what you pay for. So there is a difference between, you know, a 60 gallon fabric container that costs you $5 and a 60 gallon fabric container that's going to run you $15. So $15 uh-huh. is not that much money to spend for a 60 gallon container. But, you know, right. some people will see that $5 one and they'll be like, well, okay, that's cheaper, but it may not be constructed as well. So even though they're inexpensive, you ha- do have to think about things like that as well. And how do they handle the interface between the dirt or the underneath and the fabric itself? Does that hold up over time? Yeah, it does. And I mean, obviously that will depend as well on where you situate those containers. So if they're going to be on soil or on mulch, they're probably going to degrade a little bit more rapidly than if they were on, let's say, a hard surface like a concrete porch or asphalt driveway where they Mm -hmm. might last a little bit longer. But it's interesting. I saw a really amazing rooftop garden in Quebec City in Canada 
a couple years ago, and it was on top of a homeless shelter. Oh, nice. And it was like, I don't know, it was two acres or something like that, and it was all grown in those fabric pots. And they had everything. I mean, they had currant bushes, blueberry bushes, kiwi vines, you know, cabbages, tomatoes, squash, everything growing up on this rooftop garden. And they used those fabric planters because they were so nice and lightweight for up on yeah. the roof like that. And they were going on four years that they had been using the exact same containers. They left them out up on that rooftop in Quebec all winter long. And the manufacturer of that particular brand said that they expected about a 10-year lifespan on those containers, even in that environment. So they're a really excellent option for a lot of gardeners who are looking for something lightweight and inexpensive that still grows great plants. Plants. Right. You remember the manufacturer on those so we can share it with our listeners? Yeah, that particular brand was called Smart Pots. Smart Yeah, Pots. and it's a Canadian company, but they actually manufacture them, I believe, in Oklahoma City. Oh, yeah, right. so it's an American-made product, fairly, so I'm like 98% positive that that's true, but you could probably yeah. link to them. They're, it's a really cool product. Yeah, I'll dig it up. So when you look at the landscape of having done this book over the past year, is there one moment that was just like epic for you that you could share with us? Epic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Something happened. I did a lot of research into specific varieties of vegetables that do really well in containers because I just didn't want to tell people, you know, get a big pot and grow a giant tomato in it. Instead, I wanted to really research what are the cultivars that have a lot of breeding behind them where they have been selected through classic plant breeding to have traits, mostly physical traits, that allow them to do well in containers. So dwarf tomatoes, tomatoes that do well in hanging baskets, corn varieties that are shorter stature that actually produce that you can grow in containers, and wow. eggplants, and there's watermelons, and there's squash, and pretty much every vegetable that you want to grow, there are at least one or more, in most cases, varieties that have been bred and tailored specifically for container culture. And as I was doing all that research and really, you know, kind of getting into that and putting all of this together, and this book, by the way, is the only place that I know of that has all this information put together in chart formats actually within the book. I was going to actually ask you if you had a list of what these container plants I were, do. Are. Yep. Yep. There's charts. Nice. There's charts in the book that actually name very specific cultivars. And then in the back of the book is a resource guide where you can get every one of those cultivars that I mentioned. Oh, beautiful. Right? So that's the thing. People yeah. do it, but they don't know the varieties and then they don't know where to get them. So I wanted to put that all into this book. But the aha moment that you referenced earlier was when I was like, guess what? This also exists for fruits. Nobody had gone out that I could find uh -huh. and put together a list of fruit varieties, both small fruit and orchard fruits and stone fruits, and looked at the different root stocks and what they do to make a plant dwarf. Are there genetic dwarfs out there? What do we want to look for to grow these particular plants in a container? And so when I discovered that nobody had done it, I was like, I'm going to do that. and I'm going to put it all wow. together in this book. As far as I know, this is the only place where you're going to be able to get that kind of information. Mm -hmm. And that was really exciting for me because I hadn't even considered it. I had thought about, you know, okay, well, of course we're going to do strawberries, right? Because they're nice and tiny and they right. grow in containers. Never even thinking about grapes, you know, gooseberries and honeyberries and apple trees and all of these other great fruits that you can grow and you can do it in containers if you pick the right variety. Oh, very good. So for fruit trees, you may know that that's one of my big passions. Mm -hmm. For fruit trees in containers, 
our biggest challenge is rootstock and the heat. Yeah, that's where something like placement of your container is going to matter. You know, if there's a place mm -hmm. where you can somehow actually shade the container itself, a fabric pot in that situation would be an excellent option and choose a lighter colored fabric. So rather than having a black colored one that's going to absorb the heat, let's choose one that's tan or cream colored, which would do a better job of reflecting the heat off of that. Also mulch selection within that container as well. So perhaps mulch that container with a more reflective mulch instead of using one like maybe white gravel or something like that on the top of that container instead of choosing mm -hmm. a really dark colored mulch that would absorb that heat and hold it within that container as well. So there's those little things that you can do that you know can overcome some of the challenges that people face when growing anything in containers not just fruit but also you know other plants as well. Right. So one of the things that I suggest that people do is actually plant other things in their tree pots to shade the pot like a sweet potato. How do you feel about that? As long as you're choosing a container that is large enough to sustain both of those plants. And I do talk about that mm -hmm. in the beginning of the book. How many gallons of potting mix or a, a volume of potting mix do you need to sustain a broccoli plant or to sustain a collection of herbs or to sustain a full-size tomato plant or a fruit tree? I mean, that's really specific. You can't shove a fruit tree that's going to at maturity reach four or five feet tall in a little teeny tiny 10 or 15 or even 20 gallon pot. I mean, you have to go big or go home, right? Uh -huh. And so if you're going to mix that featured plant, right, your fruit tree or whatever you're growing in there that's the large specimen, if you're going to surround that with a skirt of under plants to help protect and shade that soil. You need to make sure that you have enough soil, enough mineral nutrition in that container to sustain all of those plants throughout the entire growing season. And in particular, that fruit tree through the winter as well from year to year, because it's right. going to be a permanent fixture in that container. But it's definitely doable. And it's completely something that I recommend. Yeah, interplanting. Plus, it helps with pollination as well. Oh, yeah, there you go. And bringing in the beneficial bugs. You know, one of the things that I was so excited about in our last conversation, and I will direct people back to that episode, which will be in the show notes from today's page, is your love of bugs and how you don't squash any of them. Can you just spend a couple of minutes and tell us about your philosophy around bugs in your garden to kind of pique people's interest to go back and listen to your other one? My philosophy basically is understanding that insects have a role in the ecosystem of the garden and that we gardeners need to allow them to have that role, whether they're considered to be a pest or a beneficial insect, they do serve a purpose in the garden. And so it's about really learning to understand and identify insects and to figure out which are the good and which ones we see as pests and why maybe we need to change the way that we think about those guys. And we need to look at instead of constantly trying to battle the pests and combat them and spend money and time and resources on that effort, instead of doing that, we should be spending our time and resources on encouraging the beneficial insects. So the predatory insects that naturally help us reduce populations of those pests. That's who we should be focusing on. We shouldn't be focusing on the bad guys, but rather promoting the good guys who will bring a natural balance back to the garden. So that's sort of the whole genesis of my previous book, was, which is Attracting mm -hmm. Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden. It's about looking at that cycle that exists in the garden and realizing that we gardeners need to step away from it and we need to let Mother Nature handle a lot of these issues before we reach for a spray can. We recently had Elaine Ingham for a webinar and she's actually been on my podcast as well. And in the webinar, she shared about how important the soil life is. You know, I knew that, but I got a new appreciation for the 
extreme importance there is to keep our gardens natural and to really nurture the beneficials of all kinds. And one of the big ways that we do that in getting the bugs in is by planting appropriate plants. Spend a minute and tell us about that. Yeah. So I know Dr. Ingham, I don't know her personally, but I know her work very well and the connection with that soil food web and how the microbiology in our soil, whether it's, you know, the fungal hyphae or bacteria of some type and how they communicate with our plants and how they help our plants grow. And in return, how our plants help them to thrive as well. And it's really just an amazing underground network of incredible life going on that helps our plants and therefore helps us as well. So if we take what she talked about and her probably talked about in her class with you, and then we move that up above the soil level, right? That's the same interactions and the same sort of web of life that takes place in the insect world as well. And how, you know, insects and plants communicate with each other. They thrive off of each other. They share things with each other. And the communications network is the one that tends to astound most people. And that, I don't even know how much we talked about that in our previous podcast, Greg, but that communication network, right, which is a series of volatile chemicals or what they call semiochemicals. They're volatiles or odors that are released into the air by plants. And it serves as essentially a communication system with the insect world. And it's really amazing when you think about that, that there are constantly messages going out in the air from plants to insects and how particular plant can release a volatile chemical into the air and it lures in a beneficial insect that would most likely feed on the pest that's attacking that plant. So it's like an SOS system going out. And and even these chemicals between two insects, they're messaging each other all of the time. And we have a silly old nose, so our nose can't pick up on these signals, but a sensitive antenna of an insect can. Mm -hmm. The more that's being revealed in the entomology community with all the research that's going on, the more that's being revealed, the more important I think it becomes for gardeners to pay attention to all of this and for us to adjust our gardening practices to really welcome and invite these insects into our gardens because they're only going to make our gardens and our world a better place by having these insects around. And of course, you don't need an in-ground garden to do all that either. I mean, that's the whole point also of this book is to really say, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you just have a little tiny patio in the city somewhere, you can still make a difference for the wildlife that calls your part of the world home. Just by putting some containers out, filling them with the right plants that will attract pollinators and ladybugs and lacewings and other beneficial insects, you can make a huge difference, especially if collectively we all do this in containers or in the ground or however we can. The impact is really huge. Really, the biggest thing here is that we don't put chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides, those kinds of things in our space. That is one of the biggest ways we can jumpstart this. Yeah, and it's actually one of the simplest ways. Gardeners who are chemical dependent, I like to call them, chemical dependent gardeners, they don't realize Mm -hmm. how easy it would be to step away from that blue liquid fertilizer and instead replace it with one of the fertilizers that I talk about in the book, which are the liquid organic fertilizers. And there's a broad diversity of them out there. So making that simple substitution is easy. It's just getting over the mental hump of changing what you've always done and doing it a different way instead. same with pesticides, you know, it's about 
understanding and accepting that there is some damage. One of the things I wanted to do with Container Gardening Complete was also make sure that we had a troubleshooting guide in the back of the book because people are often told that, oh, container gardening is so much easier. You don't get bugs. You don't get weeds. You don't get fungal diseases. And that's all a lie. <laughs> you still get those things in container gardening. It might be right. a little bit less and it's definitely easier to manage than in an in-ground garden. But I wanted to have that troubleshooting guide there so that if you did find an insect nibbling on the leaves and on your plant and your, you know, container gardening, in your container garden, you want to be able to go to the book to identify what that is and then figure out ways that you can handle it without automatically reaching for a spray bottle. And so I do describe, I don't remember exactly how many common pests in the back. I talk about common fungal diseases. You know, how are you going to get rid of that powdery mildew on your container grown zucchini plant? What do you do about physiological disorders like blossom end rot or when your tomatoes crack, when they're growing in the container and the, and the skins crack? Mm -hmm. What do you do? So that troubleshooting chapter is all about those issues that a lot of other container gardening books claim that don't happen in containers, but we all know that they do. So here's the know-how to handle those issues and nip them in the bud before they become a huge issue. And so that troubleshooting guide, I think, could be really important to people as well. So I was going to actually ha have you wrap up with a summary of the book, and you just did it beautifully. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. How about that? Yeah. What was the most fun thing about doing this book? Oh my gosh, the most fun when I got to send in the full manuscript. Oh, I can get that for sure. Looking back, I really did enjoy the photography a lot. I got to go to some really great container gardens all across the country to photograph the containers. And I got to meet the people that grew them, which is really awesome and fun to be able to do and then shoot the photographs for it. So actually, that was one of my favorite parts, again, because it's not something I usually do with my books. And um, mm -hmm. in this one, I really got to dig into the photography as well. So I greatly enjoyed that. It's always good to see it come to fruition and see the design job they did and the cover and the fact that it's hardcover is super amazing. This is my first hardcover oh, yeah. book and I love that it's sort of a big beefy complete guide and that's really special and really great to have been a part of. Nice. So just here's a an off the wall question. What kind of camera did you use for those people that are interested in photography? So some of the photos are actually iPhone photos, right? Because when you're out, out there is no better camera than the one that you happen to have in your purse or in your pocket. You know, I have an iPhone 7. Some of these pictures were taken on my iPhone 5 before I got my 7, and they're great cameras. But an awful lot of them are taken on my Canon. I have a, I'm looking at it right now to make sure I tell you the right one. I have a Canon EOS Rebel T5i that I absolutely love, and it's got a 18 to 135 millimeter lens on it so I can get close-ups of things that are far away which I really right. like and I have I've had a, this is actually my third Canon Rebel over the years for me that makes it easy to use because they're all sort of the same yeah. this one also shoots video which is really nice and so a lot of the pictures I'd say it's probably 50 50 between and eh, no probably more were taken on the Canon than were taken on my iPhone Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us again on the show today, Jessica. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, and a great conversation and an incredible, incredible book. Once again, the book is called Container Gardening Complete, Creative Projects for Growing Vegetables and Flowers in Small Spaces by Cool Springs Press. And I have to agree with what they're saying, that this is the best and most complete book on container gardening on the market. 
So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, they're welcome to access me via my website, which is just Jessica Walliser, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-W-A-L-L-I-S-E-R.com. They can also follow along on my crazy adventures on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter as well, all as Jessica Walliser. I invite them to contact me and get in touch and ask me any questions that they have, and we can learn together. Nice. And if you would like to hear more from Jessica, you can find our 318th podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash good bugs. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash container gardening. We are your urban farming resource and you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Healthy food is something that everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.